1957. In the sleepy town of Appalachian, an extraordinary meeting was taking place. Gathered in the garden of one of the town's wealthiest residents, a gang of sharp-dressed businessmen feasted on several hundred pounds of steak. This unusual group attracted attention, and the local cops looked on astonished. What they didn't know was that they were witnessing a summit meeting of the entire leadership of the American Mafia. In fact, until that moment, many denied the Mafia even existed. Sure, there was crime, but organized crime, a criminal gang with secret initiation rites and codes enforced by sentence of death, seemed like something out of the movies. Across the Atlantic in Sicily, things were much the same. Here, in the birthplace of the Mafia, its influence reached into every corner of life. Yet its very existence was often denied. Secrecy and internal discipline gave the Mafia its power. And this power was about to go global. 1957 marked the moment the American and Sicilian Mafias became international forming a billion-dollar crime corporation. It was a turning point in another way, too. It signaled the start of a war against organized crime that would last almost half a century, a war that forced both the U.S. and Italy finally to confront the terrifying criminal conspiracy in their midst. United States in the mid-1950s. The good times were here. The country had emerged from depression and world war with a booming economy. For many ordinary men and women, the American dream had become a reality. But something else was booming too. The Mafia. For those growing up in a family associated with the mob, it was as if the outside world barely existed, apart from being a source of easy money. The Mafia is organized in groups called families. The head of the family is known as the boss, or the godfather. And the longest-serving New York boss of all time was Joe Bonanno, known as Joe Bananas. He ran the Bonanno family from the early 1930s until the mid-1960s. Bonanno's power was founded on the influence he wielded over his community in New York. His son, Bill, saw firsthand how his father operated and himself became a leading gangster with the Bonanno family. My father would, on Tuesdays and Thursdays, would go into this hall and sit in an office in the back. And various people from the neighborhood would come in and ask favors. Somebody had a sick child, and she couldn't pay the doctor. And my father would arrange for that. Somebody else had a husband who was cheating on her, and she, she wanted to know what to do. He would take care of that. Uh, that happened twice a week. So when that happens, you be, 
begin to form the idea is that when you have a problem, you know where to go. This is home movie footage, shot in Brooklyn in 1957. It looks like any ordinary American family, enjoying the new prosperity. But looks can be deceiving. Dominic Montilio was born into a mob family in New York. Some of his relatives were senior mobsters in the Gambino crime family, another of America's leading mafia families. Montilio was aware from an early age how his relatives were unlike others in the neighborhood. I grew up in a very um, traditional mob family, and it was a, um, a very different kind of life than my other friends had. You know, I noticed that from the beginning, because there was times when, well, the FBI would break down the door, because, I mean, we lived in the same house with my uncle, and uh, he was very connected. Montilio's uncle was an up-and-coming gangster called Nino Caggi. One day when he was 11, Dominic ran home, bursting to tell his uncle Nino that he had been elected class president at school. I came home all excited because I had the button, you know, it said president on it. And he said, oh, great. He says, what's the class president do? So I said, you know, teacher goes out of the room and you watch the class. If anybody does anything wrong, you write their name on the board. And he looked at me and he says, are you telling me you're a rat? You're a stool pigeon. So I said, I, I, you know, I mean, 10 years old, 11 years old, what are you going to say? And he said, well, tomorrow you got to go back and give that button back to the teacher and tell her you can't be the class president. <laughs> Bill Bonanno and Dominic Montilio both grew up in a world close to the outside. The American mafia called itself Cosa Nostra, our thing. But this was a world imported to America from several thousand miles away. This is where the Mafia came from. Sicily, the largest island in the Mediterranean, with a population of five million, less than two miles from the Italian mainland. Like Montilio, Leo Luca Orlando was born in 1947, in Palermo, Sicily's biggest city. Unlike Montilio, he would grow up to fight the Mafia, not join it. Sicily is a land of contradictions. Palermo is uh, the capital of Sicily, is the capital of the matter too. Is the capital of the history. Is the capital of, of the shame of this land. In the Sicilian dialect, mafioso once meant bold or beautiful. From the 1860s, it became the name associated with the island's criminal element, who were often organized into families of men related by blood or marriage. But their existence was steeped in secrecy. Even discussing the mafia was taboo as Orlando found one day at school. When I was 14 years old, 15 years old, I organized with other students a seminar about the mafia and against the mafia. The director, the, the, the Jesuit director of the school, called my parents and said, it's a scandal. Why Lucchetto is speaking about the mafia? We have nothing to do with the mafia, therefore we are not speaking about the mafia. Gray area, not seeing, not speaking, not hearing. It was Sicily when I was a younger student. Joe Bonanno grew up in this world. He 
was a native Sicilian, born here in the pretty seaside town of Castellamare del Golfo in 1905. He only moved to America in the 1920s. Sicily has a long history of mistrust of authority. There's an old saying back there that uh, to know a man, you have to know his father and his father before him and his father before him. And once that happens, there is very little room for betrayal. Much of the power of the Mafia derived from its ruthless discipline. Chief among these values was Omerta, the vow of silence. In Sicily, all mafiosi had to take a sacred blood oath that they would never betray the organization to the authorities and that they would always carry out the orders of their mob bosses. The novice was sworn in through a quasi-religious ceremony and became a so-called man of honor. The American Mafia followed exactly the same traditional initiation ceremony. You're brought into a room and you're given the image of a saint. Prick your finger, enough to draw a drop or two of blood. Put it on the image of the saint. Put the saint in your hand and they light it. And you take an oath and it simply says that you uh, you hope to burn as this, the saint is burning if you betray your your brothers. To break this oath would mean death. Our culture taught us to act like men. And acting like men meant keeping your mouth shut. But for Bonanno and his fellow gangsters, Omerta was more than just a vow of silence. In the 1960s, the history of the Mafia changed forever when the Sicilian mob began flooding the United States with an illicit and lethal narcotic, heroin. Heroin would turn the Mafia into a global organization and make them more money than they had ever made before. But it would also sow the seeds of their own destruction. A battle would rage on the streets between a new breed of ruthless mafioso and a new kind of policeman prepared to risk everything to infiltrate the Mafia for the first time. This was a war over billions of dollars, millions of lives, and the future of America itself. the 1960s, drug addiction in the American cities was on the increase, and crime was rising. The government was forced to take action. In 1971, President Nixon declared war on drugs. Just a year later, law enforcement won a major battle by breaking up the Marseille-based heroin racket known as the French Connection. These French laboratories were supplying America with so much of the drug that the bus led to a heroin famine on the streets. What nobody knew was that this success would lead to disaster 
Shutting down the French connection was indirectly opening the door to something every bit as dangerous. The Sicilian Mafia. In the coming years, they would fill the gap in the market and forge a relationship with the most feared mafioso in America, Carmine Galante. In 1974, two years after the French connection was busted, Carmine Galante walked out of prison, ready to flood America with a new source of heroin and turn the mafia into a global drugs corporation. Galante was a member of the Mafia family known as the Bananos. He had a long history of drug trafficking and an even longer history as a tough guy. His personality could be summed up by an incident at Lewisburg Prison where he was serving a sentence for drugs trafficking. During telephone days when inmates line up to use the telephone, he was in a section which had some of the toughest black inmates you've ever seen. Murderers, strong arm artists, you name it. And he would simply walk to the head of the line, grab the phone out of some black inmate's hand and said, get off the phone, this surrounded by 200 black guys. No one dared touch a hair on his head. When he got out of prison, uh, the rumblings that you know that you heard on the street was a lot of people were scared of him, um, and he was a real tough guy, little office rocker, and always known as a, you know as a as a heroin man. That's what he did. When Galante got out of prison, the Bonanos were in crisis. Their leadership, either exiled or in prison. Joe Bonanno's son, Bill, is a convicted mobster. He remembers Galante only too well. He had a short fuse. He was uh, abrasive. He had a manner about him that he would never win any uh, popularity contest and constantly, constantly had a cigar in his mouth. And that's where he got his nickname, The Cigar. With no challengers prepared to take on this dangerous man, the Bananos had their new boss. Galante's top priority was to kickstart the heroin trade. In five short years, he transformed the fortunes of the US Mafia by leading it into an era of multi-billion dollar profits and unparalleled violence. In the 70s, the Bonanno family was known in, this, in, in, in the Mafia circles basically as being the heroin family. I mean, you know, everybody knew they were dealing in heroin. Galante was now in the perfect position to build a heroin business even bigger than the French connection. He was head of the Bonanno family, and now the heroin trade was moving to Sicily, where Galante had his roots. Galante was born in New York, but his family came from the town of Castellamare del Golfo in the northwest of Sicily. Sicilians had been emigrating to America for a hundred years, but many of their descendants kept strong links with their homeland. Galante was no exception. His plan was to exploit his close ties with the Sicilian Mafia to dominate the American heroin trade. 
This was the beginning of a whole new era in the history of the Mafia. Until now, the Sicilian and American Mafia had mainly operated as separate organizations. With the French connection broken, the Sicilian Mafia decided to fill the gap in the market. And there was no bigger market than America. The Sicilians set up a sophisticated smuggling system. Pakistani suppliers shipped partially refined opium from Asia via Turkey to a rendezvous point off the coast of Sicily. A transmitter on the seabed alerted the Sicilians when the drug ships had arrived. Then a powerboat would speed out to meet it, returning with the drugs under cover of darkness. The opium base was processed into heroin in laboratories on the west of the island. Three Sicilian bosses ran this growing trade, but one of them was far more ambitious, far more greedy, and far more dangerous than the others. Totoriina. Riina planned to shake up the Sicilian Mafia, just as Galante was making waves in America. The Sicilian Mafia always claimed they adhered to a code of honor, murdering only when necessary, and avoiding the killing of innocents, women and children. But Riina shunned these old guard rules. Riina was as ambitious as he was ruthless. He was determined to become the boss of bosses, head of the Sicilian Mafia. To achieve this, he would commit so many atrocities that he became known simply as the Beast. Totoriina, known as the Beast, was putting Sicily on the heroin map. In the early 70s, his factories were producing ton after ton of pure heroin. All of it needed to be sold. On the other side of the Atlantic, Carmine Galante and the American Mafia could see that there were huge sums to be made selling Sicilian heroin. But there was also a problem. Throughout its history, the U.S. Mafia had vowed never to be associated with drugs. The Chicago mob, known as the Outfit, was one of the most vocal opponents of the drugs trade. We always knew that if you dealt with drugs, it was a dirty business. And uh, it'd be like you're feeding your own kid narcotics. So it was like taboo. And if you got involved with it, you're, you're definitely going to get whacked. As far as the outfit was concerned, there was no need to deal drugs when money could be made in more acceptable ways. In the 1970s, Frank Carlotta was sent to Las Vegas to make sure nobody messed with the outfit's highly profitable casinos. My main job was the casinos, to make sure that everything ran smooth in there, there was no stealing going on, that they knew that our presence was there, that if they did mess around, that they would get hit in the head. For Colotta and his crew, running casinos earned them respect in a way drugs never would. Actually, 
perhaps the most lucrative criminal racket in history. Between 1979 and 1984, the Sicilian Mafia smuggled nearly $2 billion worth of heroin into the US. It made mobsters on both sides of the Atlantic rich. It also led to war. In Sicily, rival bosses fought for control of the heroin trafficking empire. The terror this war unleashed drove one godfather to break Omerta, the Mafia's sacred code of silence. His act of betrayal would lead to a transatlantic assault on the Mafia and make the first serious dent in their worldwide power. Italian food products and distributed through pizzerias owned by the Sicilian Mafia. It was known as the Pizza Connection. The U.S. faced an epidemic of heroin addiction. But for American gangsters, heroin meant money, and lots of it. Henry Hill was a Mafia drug wholesaler in New York. Later, his life of crime was immortalized in the Hollywood blockbuster, Goodfellas. Hill would pick up heroin from pizzerias owned by Sicilian mafiosi, then supply it to dealers across the city. Even for a low-ranking mobster like Hill, the profits were enormous. The amount of money that I made was all I mean, was astronomical. I mean, like 20, 30,000 a day. I mean, I'm serious. Shopping bags full. I, I didn't have places to put them. Put the money. And, and you accumulate it so quickly, you know, you just, that's a whole nother lifestyle. A whole nother lifestyle because, you know, you go from, you know, a few hundred thousand to, to, to millions quickly, you know. This is where the drugs were coming from. Palermo capital of Sicily. In the catacombs beneath the city, bodies lie preserved for posterity. In Palermo, a cult of death has been a tradition for centuries. In the 1980s, death loomed over the island once again. A bloody mafia war was raging. The prize, control of the heroin trade to America. It was a war started by a ferocious mafia gang from the village of Corleone. Corleone was a mafia stronghold set high in the mountains of central Sicily. It was the place that gave its name to Marlon Brando's character in the film The Godfather. Corleone crime family was a killer called Toto Regina. 
Reina became known simply as the Beast. In 1981 and 1982, bodies of Reina's victims were turning up on the streets of Palermo every three days. Yet a wall of silence meant bringing the killers to justice was impossible. One night in Corleone, a rival of Reina was shot dead outside the building where the town council was meeting. It was a night that Dino Paternostro remembers clearly. We went downstairs and found a body on the street. I was only 25 years old and I said to the mayor, let's phone the carabinieri. He looked straight at me and said, you found the carabinieri. There was a butcher's shop opposite and I asked if I could use their phone. They just looked at me and said, no. The phone's out of order. No one was willing to talk. The police could do little to combat the carnage. That was about to change. In Palermo, five magistrates formed a special unit to combat the Mafia. The driving force was Judge Giovanni Falcone. Falcone had grown up in a rundown area of old Palermo. An area that had become a breeding ground for future mafiosi. But Falcone was brought up to respect the law, as his sister recalls. Our parents had a big influence in the way we grew up, particularly in shaping Giovanni's character. Above all, in our household, patriotism and the love of our country were the most important values in life. Falcone fought the Mafia from the Palace of Justice in Palermo. Even here, he lived in fear for his life. The authorities provided him with little protection. Known mafiosi wandered freely through its corridors. Liliana Ferraro was a close friend and colleague of Falcone in the war against the Mafia. One day, from her office in the Ministry of Justice in Rome, she paid Falcone a visit. I went to Giovanni's office, knocked on the door, and he was just asking an old man to leave. Giovanni seemed very short with him, and I thought this was a bit strange. Later, he explained the man was a known mafia collaborator who'd managed to get into his office. Falcone had a simple tactic for combating the Mafia. Heroin was being smuggled from Sicily to America. Dollars were flowing in the opposite direction. If he could uncover the paper trail of this dirty money, 
he would be able to mount a criminal case against the Mafia's leaders. The trail led to the U.S., where the American mob sold the heroin smuggled in by the Sicilian Mafia. This is home movie footage, shot in Brooklyn in the mid-1950s. But this was no ordinary American family. Dominic Montilio was raised by his uncle, Nino Gaggi. Gaggi was a senior mobster with the Gambino crime family, one of the most powerful of America's mafia families. Uncle Nino introduced Montilio to crime. By the late 70s, Montilio was also a Gambino mobster, using this Manhattan restaurant as a base to deal drugs. They used to call this restaurant um, my headquarters. Um, I would sit and do business here, everything from uh, the drug business to my lawn shark business. Um, I felt very secure here. I always had a place to stash my weapons. Montilio witnessed firsthand how heroin brought together the American and Sicilian mafias, uniting them by a common desire to make money. When the heroin was involved, the Americans and the Sicilians would hold hands and do the deals, you know, do business together. But other than that, we had very little to do with them. But Mafia bosses faced a dilemma. They loved them. They were two very different godfathers, separated by 4,000 miles of ocean. John Gotti was the Teflon dog. A New York mobster who adored public attention and defied lawmen to get him. Totoriina was a peasant from rural Sicily, a boss who operated in the shadows. In the late 80s and early 90s, it required two very different approaches to bring them to justice. In the United States, Crime fighters were unflagging in their pursuit of Gotti. You disregard my phone calls, I'll pull you in a house up. In Sicily, it would take a revolution by the people of Palermo to put Riina behind bars. Gotti was a violent and reckless hoodlum from his earliest days. A young gangster called Henry Hill was drinking in a bar when he first came across the teenage Gotti. All this thing, John comes in, that's it. Wait, anyway, goes over to the card table and starts whacking again. What a bad 
So we sat there for uh, three hours, so about 4.30. And then they started coming out crime family by crime family. The top men in the Gambino, the Lucchese, the Colombo and the Genovese families all emerged. Then finally our uh, long-awaited uh, guest of honor, if you will, uh, Paul Castellano came out. Castellano was the boss of bosses. He was like the king strutting out. You could almost envision a carpeted area. It was a real show of, of how the mob operates and mob protocol. It was very exciting. Uh, I don't know how Andy managed to keep the camera as still as he did. He used this shoulder right here as a tripod, and uh, I just didn't breathe for the longest period of time. Castle wasn't in any big rush. Took a couple of puffs on the cigar and uh, got in the car and drove off. The photographs were dynamite. The FBI knew that such striking visual evidence was just a thing to put in front of a jury. <laughs> in February 1985, the FBI seized all five members of the commission. Agents O'Brien and Curins arrested Castellano and drove him to FBI headquarters in Manhattan. <laughs> Federal authorities at New York City and state law enforcement officials today announced one of the most important indictments of mafia bosses in this nation's history. In the car on the way to FBI headquarters, Castellano heard a radio news bulletin about the arrests. It was the beginning of the end of Castellano's reign. The authorities made their move late last night. Among those now facing federal racketeering and extortion charges are Paul Castellano, head of the Gambino family. The key to the investigation was an electronic bug. He turned to Joe, I remember, and he says, is that true? Is that true? You listened to my private conversations. Prosecutors say the recordings are of superb quality. You could almost hear him, like, groan. Castellano awaited trial, at which the photos would be key evidence. A power vacuum had been created at the heart of the Gambino family. The situation was ripe for war. If the New York mob wanted to know what a mafia war was like, they needed to look no further than Sicily. Here, the mafia's boss was Toto Reina, an elusive, psychopathic killer from the town of Corleone. Corleone was a mafia stronghold set high in the mountains of central Sicily. It was the place that gave its name to Marlon Brando's character in the film The Godfather. Rihanna's cruelty earned him the name The Beast. Rihanna's crime family had seized control of the Mafia in a vicious war. In Palermo in the early 80s, 
the streets were awash with the blood of Riina's victims during one six-month period with his bodyguards. This outrage was the final straw. It caused a revolution against the Mafia, led by the people of Palermo. After the killing of Paolo Borsellino, the reaction of people population in Palermo was enormous. The women, the children, the people reacted, just crying, basta, no more, enough is enough. Enough was enough. Thousands poured onto the streets of Palermo in a wave of anger unprecedented in Sicilian history. Everyone sensed the Mafia's next target was Mayor Leoluca Orlando, elected to office pledging to rid Palermo of the Mafia. When he appeared in public, women and children threw a protective cordon around him, daring the Mafia to kill them to get to the mayor. They sent a clear message. The message was that there was not alone. The message was that the Mafia can kill a man. The Mafia can kill ten men, but the Mafia cannot kill thousands and thousands of women and children. It was the beginning of the hand. People power had beaten back the Mafia. The government flooded Sicily with thousands of troops, determined to crack down hard on the Mafia. In January 1993, Italian police scooped the biggest prize of all. Following a tip-off, was finally arrested. Salvatore Irina was captured in Palermo by the Carabinieri this morning. Totorina is ours. Astonishingly, Irina had been living in the middle of Palermo, undetected by the police for over 20 years. When Riena was paraded in public, Italians were shocked. This inoffensive-looking, peasant-like character was responsible for the brutal slaying of Falcone and Borsellino, along with hundreds of others. At his trial, Riena painted himself as a poor old man who knew nothing about the Mafia. This flimsy defense was rejected. Riina was sentenced to life imprisonment to be served away from Sicily in a jail on the Italian mainland. On both sides of the Atlantic, the day of the Godfather seemed over. John Gotti died of cancer in prison in 2002, 10 years into his life sentence. With Gotti's death, an era ended. By publicly flaunting the fact that he was boss of bosses, 
He ensured that law enforcement agencies would leave no stone unturned to finally smash the mob. The future is pretty grim for the mob if the FBI and other federal agencies keep the pressure on to go after these guys. The biggest mistake we can make is declare that the war and the mob is over with, we've won, and go off to do other things. These people are very resilient. Five years, they could regroup, reorganize. They'll never be as effective what they were 30 years ago, but they still be a viable criminal force. In the U.S., the mob are moving with the times. They're involved in internet fraud, sex phone lines, and stock exchange scams. But they are no longer the power they were. Nor will the FBI let Russian, Chinese, or other criminals dominate their neighborhoods in the way Italian gangsters once controlled theirs. In Sicily, they are also keeping up the pressure. Yet in these hills, even with Regina in prison, the Mafia is still there. Invisible but deadly. Today, there are new leaders. They are also from the Mafia stronghold of Corleone. They have turned their backs on the self-defeating tactics of Tatoriina. No longer do they assassinate public officials. Like the leaders of old, they prefer to pull the strings from the shadows. Forse vivemmo tutti quanti una vera grande illusione che cosa nostra sarebbe stata da noi Maybe we were just kidding ourselves that we could destroy the mafia with just four moves on a chessboard. In the US, the mob is finally in retreat. But in Sicily, it is rising from the ashes, adapting itself to the times, changing tactics to ensure that its power remains as unshakable today as it ever was. as an adolescent when he takes a job at a mob joint. Top man is Paul Vario, a capo in the Lucchese crime family, one of the most violent mobs in New York. He wasn't born a criminal, but um, he happened to have been reared in a neighborhood infested with uh, mafia gangsters. Ed McDonald is the former head of the organized crime strike force in Brooklyn. He will get Henry into the witness protection program. He was attracted to the excitement and to the power and to the glamour of what, what he saw in front of him. He could be a movie star with muscle. And, and that's really what he wanted. That plus the excitement of being a gangster. At home, Henry's father struggles to provide for his wife and seven children. Paul Vario, known as Paulie, will become the father he felt he never had. Henry is half Sicilian, so Paulie naturally trusts the boy and starts giving him more responsibility. But it's while waiting card games that Paulie introduces him to the man that will shape his future criminal career. 
Jimmy the Gent Burke. Henry Hill is immediately drawn to the charismatic mobster. He loved the fact that Jimmy Burke would be respected wherever he went, into a restaurant, into a nightclub, chairs would fall out immediately. So Jimmy the Gent had a huge impact on Henry Hill. He would hand out $20 bills, and that's what Henry Hill really wanted. He aspired to that kind of richness, that kind of luxury. But behind the extravagant facade, Jimmy is a ruthless gangster. He's someone who demands respect. You don't mess with Jimmy the Jet. As his stock rises, Hill starts to run errands with Capo Pauli. The teenager sees it as a privilege, but Henry is about to discover the cold facts of mob life. When Paulie drops in on his mistress, Henry thinks it's a routine visit, but the lovesick woman had made the cardinal mistake of contacting Paulie's wife. She had let slip about their affair. Paulie then with Henry there, went to her house and beat her savagely with a baseball bat. And he put her in a hospital, broken neck, broken bones, uh, and this was a woman, my Joe. It's a shocking lesson for Henry. The mob can forgive anyone but a rat. Woman, child, or otherwise, if you do break that code of silence, uh, the consequences can be quite uh, severe. It's a lesson that Henry will remember of his life. By the early 60s, cargo worth $30 billion a year was passing through the newly built JFK airport. The mob quickly catches on to the criminal opportunity, and soon Jimmy Burke is the king of the cargo hijackers. At Kennedy Airport, you could find anything from fur coats, jewelry, expensive watches, anything else that one could possibly imagine. These are cargo containers that at times contained hundreds of thousands of dollars in merchandise. And this was the reason why Kennedy Airport was the hotbed, the nucleus for hijackers. When Henry gets a taste of the hijacking racket, his eyes are opened. For his first heist, he is partnered up with another young gun, a tough guy named Tommy Simone. They were about the same age. They became friends, but they were two different elements. Tommy Simone was a loose cannon. He was a brute, six foot four, 240 pounds, and he could really handle himself. Henry Hill was peaceful, would avoid violence. Tommy DeSimone would uh, embrace violence. But for this heist, Tommy's violent nature will be kept in check as Henry Sweet talks his way through security. Once inside, he convinces a guard to open up the loading bay with the oldest trick in the book fingers in the back. The idea that with two fingers you convince a uh, guard to open up the door for you, 
it establishes for him that the airports are, are good hunting grounds. Henry's plan plays out seamlessly. The guard doesn't resist. He did it without uh, violence, without uh, killing anyone, without hurting anyone, or without even risking being hurt himself. It, it was intoxicating to him. Yeah, addictive as well, naturally. With the guard tied up, they leave the truck yard with trailers full of merchandise. Within a matter of minutes, he had his hands on thousands of dollars in uh, swag. And for Hill, the important thing was that no one got hurt. With his new pal, Tommy, Henry's gang is complete. And with his share of the loot, $40,000 in today's money, Henry at last has the means to emulate his hero. For Henry, having money wasn't a matter of building up abstract wealth. It was having enough money to go into clubs that he loved. He was uh, always the center of attention. <laughs> but Henry knows that to be respected by the Mafia, he needs a wife. A married man has more to lose. And when Henry is introduced to a young Karen Friedman, he initially sees her as a means to an end. Henry meets Karen, and initially he didn't really like her that much, but was attracted to her over time because she's a say-it-like-it-is New Yorker. But she also was very innocent, and Karen really didn't know what she was getting involved with at the end of the day. He finally gets Karen to come on a date with him to the Copa Cabana and Sammy Davis Jr. is performing. He sends over champagne. At that point, she realizes that this is someone who has potential. Within months, the couple marry and move to the leafy suburbs of Long Island. But Karen will soon learn that Henry's heart lies with the mob. I think Henry's biggest problem uh, from a personality standpoint, was that he had a, an addictive personality. And part of that addiction was that being addicted to the glitz, the glamour, and the excitement of being in the mob. For now, Henry is where he wants to be. But Karen is desperate for her husband to go straight. Karen has been trying to convince Henry to pull away from the mob, really striving to have a normal life here. Even with the financial success, Karen really wanted a stable life for her kids. But the pull of mob life in the city is too strong for Henry to take her seriously. He was an excitement junkie. He was somebody who wanted to be on the edge all the time. He was addicted to the thrill and to the excitement of the mafia. It wouldn't be long before Henry returns to the scene of his first big score. The Lucchese crime family's playground, JFK Airport. The cargo buildings had no security whatsoever. The foreign airlines were very, very lax. Maybe they felt that uh, being in the United States, the crime was non-existent. Well, they were wrong. Hill gets a tip-off at almost half a million dollars in cash is being stored at the Air France depot. The money is being held behind one locked door. All Henry needs to open it is a key. 
While others might turn to violence to get it, Henry devises a pain-free plan. He gets the keyholder drunk and then organizes a distraction. After the, the guard and the uh, prostitute left the room, they frolicked for approximately maybe an hour, an hour and a half. Henry Hill went back into the room and removed the key to the vault from the key ring attached to the uh, guard's pants. Henry duplicates the key and returns it. And the guard is none the wiser. Henry comes up with a plan that is wonderfully gentlemanly, and it, it's, it's a beautifully elegant plan. They walk into the Air France depot and unlock the door to the safe room. They locate the packets of cash, stuff as many as they can into a suitcase, and walk out. Henry left with $480,000 in cash, around $6.5 million in today's money. I'm inspired by whatever is in front of me, and this is what has been in front of me my whole life. Without using violence, Henry was earning a reputation as a man who could help the mob get rich. So when this happened, it really allowed Henry to move up the ladder in the mob, knowing that he finally gained the respect of people that he himself has respected all his life. But just as Henry seems on the verge of the big time, the violence-averse goodfella gets cold feet. Karen convinces Henry to go straight and so with Paulie's blessing he buys a club in Queens called The Suite Paulie even banned the Vario crew from visiting the club Henry was a natural restaurateur he loved treating people well I think Henry really felt that it was the right thing to do to try and establish a legitimate business go straight but despite paulie's ban it isn't long before his old partners in crime jimmy and tommy visit his club with a life outside the mob within their grasp it's the last thing the hills want to see but the boys have plans for a new venture Henry is sucked back into their world. Henry Hill is at a moment in organized crime when America becomes involved in drug culture. Part of partying, part of enjoying yourself, is using cocaine. This is the, uh, the drug of success. This was something that was banned in the five families in, in New York City. They learned that the people who were facing lengthy jail sentences for narcotics trafficking were likely to cooperate. The upside is dealing drugs would be lucrative, and Henry's new club is off the radar. Henry was violating this edict in the Lucchese crime family 
Faria learned about that, uh, then he would be killed. But because he was using the narcotics, he became extremely careless. As ex-FBI agent Steve Carbone reveals, it's not long before he's addicted to the merchandise as much as the profits. He was almost obsessed. He was on the way to disaster. And what happened was the drugs finally got him. And Henry isn't the only one. Tommy D. Simone becomes overwhelmed by the stimulant. It was only a matter of time before someone triggered the hothead to violence. That man is Billy Batts, a high-ranking mobster just released from prison. Tommy is absolutely whacked out on cocaine. That's out of control. Batts makes a joke at Tommy's expense. He erupts and bludgeons Batts to death with his pistol. is an absolute explosion of violence. Henry is right in the middle of it, witnessing it, unable to stop it. In that instant, Henry's world is turned upside down. Billy Batts is no ordinary mobster. Billy Batts is a made man. He's sworn his life to the Mafia, and for that, he receives complete protection. The penalty for killing a made man is death. Billy Batts is in a state of hyper-protection, and even another made man can't kill a made man. Being that now the three of them are equally endangered by this, the only thing that Henry could do is, is help dispose of the body. For better or worse, Henry now knows that his fate is tied to Jimmy the Gent and Tommy De Simone. Once they've carried out this killing together, he is now completely bound to organized crime. There's no way out for him at this point. The murder will haunt them for the rest of their lives. But for now, they've covered their tracks. With the murder hanging over him, Henry Hill receives some good news. His friend, a bookmaker named Marty Krugman, has contacts at Kennedy Airport. There's about to be a large shipment of untraceable cash moving through the Lufthansa cargo terminal. Henry knew, as soon as he heard about it, that there was a great opportunity here. Anytime Henry learned of an opportunity for a score, he would do one thing. He would immediately go to Jimmy Burke and tell Jimmy about it. Henry has given the floor plans of the cargo terminal and valuable intel on the security. They knew the outline. They knew sort of the geography of the cargo terminal. They knew where the money was being kept. They knew where the jewelry was being kept. Jimmy assembles a crew of hardened armed robbers. But Henry isn't among them. Jimmy would not allow him to go on the Lufthansa robbery because he couldn't trust them because Henry was just not a reliable, uh, violent gangster. Burke and Simone were people who had reputations for, for being killers. Henry was sort of a, a tag-along guy. Under cover of darkness, the crew make their move. 
They beat up a guard at the entrance to the Lufthansa cargo terminal. Straight open! Come on! Move! Move! Whether it's the cocaine or whether it's the fact that they've already together committed a violent crime, uh, it's the first crime where they really brutalize the Lufthansa employees. Now, they apply mental torture. The gunman took the driver's licenses from all the employees and told them that uh, if they uh, identified them, that they knew who they were and where they lived. Get down! It worked. The terrified men get them into the vault. of $30 million in today's money and was in line for a fortune. Henry got much more excited afterwards when Jimmy told him we had so much we didn't know what to do with it. I think Henry was proud that he really was in a way responsible for the largest robbery in the history of the United States. Within 48 hours, the FBI assign over 100 agents to the case. Ed McDonald, former head of the organized crime strike force in Brooklyn, is put in joint charge. Informants were going wild. And within days, everybody in law enforcement knew that the Burke crew was responsible for the robbery. The question is, how do you get proof? You have to move slowly. You have to gather evidence against them. The FBI puts the Burke crew under intense surveillance. We decided that we would try to get bugs in cars. And mostly what we got was horrible disco music and the heating in the car. At the end of the day, our electronic surveillance produced nothing. They hold out little hope when they show a Lufthansa guard photographs of the Burke crew. It seems like a lost cause, as the robbers wore masks. But as unlikely as it is, within a matter of minutes, they get a breakthrough. Tommy Simone was uh, the individual guarding the captives. Head down! And he removed the ski mask momentarily just to cool his face. And the Lufthansa employees had a good look at him and were able to uh, ultimately identify him. The man, still terrified from the robbery, refuses to testify in court. But they know they're on the right track. Henry, Jimmy and Tommy are sitting on $5 million in cash. But the FBI is breathing down their necks. The FBI gets another break when they discover the getaway van driven by gang member Stax Edwards. Joint team leader Steve Carbone remembers the moment it was found. I was there that day. Uh, we found it, put it in the garage, and, and did a forensic on it. Edwards was supposed to get rid of it, burn it, crush it 
It didn't. Investigators track Edwards to his apartment. But Edwards won't be talking. Six bullets in his head and chest tell the FBI that Jimmy Burke's unraveling. And he has a brutally simple plan to silence the heist crew. He'll murder everyone involved. Burke was beyond himself. He couldn't handle it because he thought any minute the walls were going to come tumbling down. Next on Jimmy's hit list is Marty Krugman, the bookmaker who gave Henry the Lufthansa tip-off. Marty Krugman was a potential weak link, and shortly after the robbery, Marty Krugman uh, went missing. The bloodbath continues against anyone involved, however slight. There was a homicide of a fellow by the name of Richard Eaton, who was found strung up in a freezer, and he didn't even really have anything to do with it. Every time we reached out for a subject, pretty much he was dead. They could very well have been people who would have cooperated if we leaned on them heavily enough. And unfortunately, you know, they got to them before we did. Henry is helpless to stop Jimmy. As the body count nears 13, it becomes clear that no one is safe. While Henry Hill is alive, he is just another weak link. Henry is in a corner. If the FBI doesn't get him, Jimmy will. And it's surely only a matter of time before the Mafia links him to the death of made man, Billy Bats. But some good news. Henry learns that his best friend, Tommy DeSimone, is about to become a made man. It seems if the Mafia knows about the killing of Billy Bats, they don't care much. Jimmy Burke is extraordinarily proud. This is someone who has attained his position being under the wing of Jimmy the, the Gent. It's a very proud moment. As a made man, Tommy will be untouchable. And Jimmy and Henry can breathe a little easier. But the promotion is a ploy. Instead of making his bones, Tommy is whacked. Paulie knows about the killing of Billy Bats. Tommy DeSimone was somebody who was, who was wild. In that world, you know, with the rules that they follow, he sort of got what he deserved. If the Mafia knows that Tommy killed Billy Bats, the chances are they know everything. Although Tommy committed the murder, they helped dispose of the body. And basically, once Tommy's been killed, it will just be a matter of time before they're killed. As someone who's not a made man, he is completely subject to justice as Polly sees it. He's in extraordinary danger. With Henry's world spiraling out of control, he survives 
by trafficking narcotics. It's a desperate gamble, because under Mafia law, the penalty for dealing drugs is death. So every moment he feared someone, an executioner, approaching him, either at his doorstep or perhaps in the streets. And it isn't long before his past catches up with him. Henry thought that that was the end. He just braced for that final blow, thinking that the executioner had finally caught him. But the shot doesn't come. The man is a cop. He feels this wave of relief because at that moment he's not going to be shot. Henry is arrested for narcotics trafficking by the Nassau County Police Department. Shoot. What's wrong? I think I'm down on my last inhaler. Don't worry, you can refill it and get it delivered using the Kaiser Permanente app. Smart. Within 24 hours, arrangements are made to turn him over to the FBI. With so many dead leads, Henry's arrest is the break they've been waiting for. Jimmy Burke and that crew knew if Henry wanted to, he could rat on all of them. Facing 25 years to life for dealing drugs or dying with his family at the hands of the Mafia, Henry tries to bargain. They always think, I don't have to give everything up. I'll be able to give part of it up. And the guys will still like me. He was thinking about getting some other small-time guys for extortion, loan sharking, that, those types of crimes. But Henry also knows the price of ratting out the mob. So the FBI agents lay down their ace card. A wiretap recording of Jimmy Burke. Jimmy wants Henry dead. And so does Paul Vario for Hill's drug use. Henry was unbelievably desperate. He was worried about his family, his kids. So there was no question. He knew as soon as he got out, he was dead. Burke or Vario would take care of him. He knew that life was spiraling out of control. There was no way to turn. Uh, he hit a brick wall. After weeks of mounting pressure, Hill finally cracks. The parole officer called me and said, you know, he wants to speak to me. But once you've done that, it looks like you're looking for help. And that means you might be willing to give up something for that help. With nowhere left to run, Henry reveals all. It became apparent that he had a lifetime of crime with these guys and he was able to make cases as a witness. He was a font of information, he was very reliable, and he was going to be an invaluable witness. They make him an offer that might just save his life. If he testifies against Jimmy Burke and Paul Vario, they'll put Henry and his family into witness protection. Henry really had nowhere to turn. Everything was crashing down on him, and we were his salvation. They enter the witness protection program. And the Hill family disappear from the records. From his safe house, 
Henry makes secret trips to New York under armed guard to rat out the entire Lucchese crime family. He had to be guarded, you know, 24-7. They knew that he was cooperating. The minute he left there, his life was in danger. He was scared. I mean, he really was scared. I mean, he, he was in constant fear that we're going to retaliate. They were going to come look for him and kill him. The FBI agents are astonished as Hill gives up a lifetime's worth of evidence. We weren't sure what he was going to offer us, but we did know he knew this group better than anyone. Hill's testimony gets his personal godfather, Capo Paul Vario, put behind bars for 10 years. He was the father that Henry didn't feel he had, but I think he also realized that it was a matter of uh, Paul or him. After years of giving evidence, Henry testifies that his mentor, Jimmy Burke, killed Richie Eaton, the man whose body was found frozen in a refrigerator. Jimmy the Gent Burke is sentenced to life in prison. He wrote Burke off, and unfortunately Burke was the victim of Henry Hill's testimony. He becomes the most infamous mob rat in history. His evidence helps put away 50 members of organized crime. And in the eyes of the mafia, every one carries a death sentence. <laughs> the witness protection marshals relocate Hill far from the New York mob. Hill family start a new life with new names in Omaha, Nebraska. This is where the film Goodfellas ends, with Henry free from the mob's clutches. But in the real story, Henry Hill's life was in more danger than it had ever been. The witness protection marshals call the family's home with bad news. Jimmy Burke knows Henry is hiding in the Midwest. Polly and Jimmy were dedicated to finding Henry Hill. No matter how long it would take, Henry was sure that they would hunt him down and kill him. And it was just a matter of time. The marshals aren't taking any chances. The Hill family is forced to build a new life again in another part of the country. new beginning with a new identity should see life improve for the Hill family. But after years addicted to drugs, money and adrenaline, Henry starts to unravel. Henry had a great deal of difficulty adapting to life. He still wanted to be part of the old life. He backslided and he began to drink heavily. He began to use drugs. So Henry was guilt-ridden and full of remorse. He loathed himself for having uh, snitched on his friends. And in my opinion, ultimately, uh, he wanted to uh, end his life. He can't resist telling everyone that he is Henry Hill, the mastermind behind the Mafia's biggest heist. Maybe because he was getting addicted to drugs and his brain was just fogged out. You know, he would shoot his mouth off about who he was. He would get a couple of drinks in him and... Yeah, you hear that story about Lufthansa, you know, that's me. 
if he thought about it, he would keep his mouth shut, but he just wanted the attention. As Steve Carbone discovers, Hill had given up on his family. He called me once. He said, you know, you got to congratulate me. So I said, Henry, what for? He says, I got married. I said, oh, congratulations. And then I thought for a second, I said, Henry, you are married. I know, but that was with my other name. Now I'm in the program. He got married under his new name. Inevitably, his wife leaves him. And it's not long before the witness protection marshals cut him adrift. The witness protection program finally said, look, we're not going to have any more of this. So they kicked him out of the program. Off the rails and with no one looking out for him, Henry falls in with a gang of drug traffickers. Why would Henry do this kind of stuff? Why was Henry trafficking in narcotics? He was an excitement junkie. He was somebody who wanted to be on the edge all the time. Unknown to Henry, the gang are under DEA surveillance. DEA thought that Henry getting into the kind of trouble he was getting into after being involved in the witness protection program, that he deserved to be arrested. The DEA throws Henry Hill into the worst place imaginable. Terminal Island Prison. It's a penitentiary just outside Los Angeles, run by the Gambinos, a mob family with close ties to Paul Vario. The Gambinos certainly held sway. So when it became known that Henry Hill was one of the prisoners, he was in much more danger than he ever was on the outside. Basically, the guards guard the doors and the prisoners regulate life within the prisons. Paranoid about his safety, Hill gets word to Ed McDonald, his old contact from the Justice Department. He contacted me and asked if I would write a letter for him. And I said, look, I can't write a letter recommending that you not go to prison. But what I can do is I can, I can write a letter explaining the threats that you fear. And I can talk about your significance, your value as a witness. The judge gives Hill a suspended sentence and he enters an intense drug treatment program. Henry's luck has started to turn. He hears Paul Vario has died. The 73-year-old capo is no longer a threat. It doesn't mean that he's completely out of the woods, but certainly it was a major relief to him. But as long as Jimmy Burke is alive, Henry will always be looking over his shoulder. Henry is eventually released from drug treatment. But with no money and no protection, he is a sitting duck. Henry lived every day looking over his, over his shoulder. I mean, he, he was in constant fear that people in the world of organized crime were going to retaliate. They were going to come and look for him and kill him. There's a lot of uh, people who would still want to make their name, people who would want to kill Henry just to uh, impress 
people in organized crime. But when his past catches up with him, it's not in the way he expects. A lot of people think I'm Yours is a love song. I really wrote it for myself, for the joy of creating music. I love the magic. Henry is approached by Nicholas Pileggi, an author keen to tell his story. And no one can predict what happens next. Hollywood legend Martin Scorsese wants to turn Hill's story into a movie. And Goodfellas transforms Henry's life. He got to talk to Ray Liotta. He got to talk to Robert De Niro, Joe Pesci. He was like a hero. He would sign autographs. The film should remind the mob of Henry's betrayal. But when it's released, it has an unexpected upside. Goodfellas made Henry such a star. Those who wanted to see him dead no longer would go near him. As the years pass... Whatever lingering grudges the mob holds, die. When in 1996, Jimmy Burke is taken by lung cancer. Henry Hill, the mob rat, has outlived all other Goodfellas. He's the person that commits the largest crime in the history of the United States and does so while being a complete screw-up. And 40 years on from the Lufthansa heist, the loot has never been recovered. We learned from Henry that a good part of the money was used in drug deals. So it wasn't like they were putting money in the bank or getting involved with mutual funds. Uh, they were using the money for sort of street deals. But the real story is of a mob rat who put 50 gangsters behind bars. I don't think he regretted for a moment. He ratted out his friends. I think he realized that that's what he had to do to save himself. And uh, he didn't look back. More by luck than design, Henry survives his time in the mob and witness protection. The day after his 69th birthday, he passes away at his home in Los Angeles. Henry died in his bed the night after a great birthday party. Is an extraordinary, successful life for a man that was Henry Hill. The real Henry Hill was a guy who was a small-time wise guy who thought he could beat the system. And ultimately, you know what? I think Henry did beat the system.